done. So, I was going to ask you to look at these verse, this verse behind me. <laughs> you may have to look the other way, <laughs> or in your Bibles. Um, and just in these first few verses, to talk about, uh, to, to uh, answer for me, what are the parts of his nature, of God's nature, that the psalmist mentions in these verses? Do you see them, or can you remember them? Righteous, I hear, yeah. He's righteous. He's like the champion of righteousness, I think. Faithful. What a big one that is. Unfailing love. Kind of connects to faithfulness, doesn't it? Unfailing love. Any others? What was that? Justice. All right. Justice, so the justice and love is a, an interesting thing that we always have to talk about when we talk about God, how those two things work together. Any others? Sovereignty, all right, yeah, thank you. It says he's true, does it say he's true? Right and true, yes. So God has many names in the Bible and... Uh, I noticed that John had picked up quite a few and stuck them somewhere on your bulletin. Yeah, I'm not sure they're still there. I didn't bring it with me. But perhaps they're sitting there. Um, he has many names. The all-sufficient God, the faithful God. The, 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 there are lots of Hebrew here. So I'm not that good at Hebrew. Now let's start again. I'm completely hopeless at Hebrew. Um, so I'm going to massacre everything from this point. Right. So Al Shaddai the all-sufficient God, El Hanaman, the faithful God, El Emet, the God of truth, El Elyon, not sure that's right, the most high God, El Olam, the everlasting God. And there are many, many of these, um, and you can look on... Uh, some of the scriptures that are on the bulletin, if you want to pick out some of the others. But there is one most mysterious and famous one, which you do not see behind me. But if you look over there, I can see it. There you go. See, that's a good one. So, I'm, as I said, I'm hopeless a Hebrew, so I'm hoping somebody can tell me what that says. Anybody want to can tell me? Ah, uh, you see? Uh, well, okay, when I, when I look at that, I don't see Yahweh. Um, I, I don't tell you what I do see. It, yeah. It, but this is the word Yahweh, sometimes pronounced that way. Now, the Jews, um, for many hundreds of years, um, did not pronounce this word. Instead, they said, Lord. They consider this word to be too sacred to be uttered. So that means that actually it's quite difficult for us to really know what the true pronunciation is, but most folks believe that Yahweh is probably about right. And um, Lord is the way it's translated in most of our Bibles. So if you see it now in the, um, in the NIVs in front of you, you'll see Lord in capitals. That 
is the same word, Yahweh. And in some other Bibles, you might see some other translations. Sometimes Jehovah is used in the King James, I think. And can anybody help us, you students of Hebrew? Some very blank faces now. I'm worried. (laughs) What does it mean? What will be a translation? I am. Good. So do we agree? Uh, Maybe. (laughs) Or I will be, or I will cause, or I will make. Yes, it's a very fundamental meaning, very profound. Um, Perhaps translated, I am the name of God. So you may recall the story in Exodus 3, um, the burning bush and and, uh, God meeting Moses there. Moses wanted to have some kind of signature for the message he was being asked to carry to the Israelites in in Egypt so that they would know that he was carrying a message conveyed in a meeting with God. And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And then he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. I am. So then the psalmist goes on as follows, and let's follow the uh, psalm a little bit further. By the word of the Lord, that's Yahweh, the heavens were made, their starry host by the breath of his mouth. Now you see the psalmist is moving from who God is to what he has done. And we're going to spend some more, most, really most of the rest of our time on that, what he has done. So then I have a photo I want to show you, which you can't see, but you can see it over there. Right, so that that bigger photo there, um, I had a poster like this on my bedroom wall when I was a kid. So it's quite familiar to me in that, you know, I used to wake up and look at it or stare at it at night for for a long time. This is the Andromeda Galaxy. It's often claimed to be the most distant object that can be seen with the naked eye. If you look with the naked eye, that's not what you see. Unfortunately, what you see is a blob of light if you find yourself in a dark enough place to have a good view of the night sky. Um, It's spectacular. Um, Unfortunately, hard to get a, a good view of from New Jersey. You might think, as I did, this photo was taken through some big telescope in Hawaii, but it wasn't. It was taken by a three and a half inch portable telescope, this kind of size, um, from somewhere in Canada, um, well away from cities, I'm sure. And then a good, a good digital camera with a CCD and some clever image processing. It's really not difficult to see, and it's out there. So in the picture, which you can't see in this, you bend your necks. There's the swirly galaxy in the center, and then there's two satellite galaxies, the brighter dots above and below, and the rest of the points of light are coming from stars that are in our own galaxy, the Milky Way. So we have to look through our own galaxy, the Milky Way, to see these types of things in the night sky. Our own galaxy um, would look a lot like this if you were on the outside looking in, but we're not. So we're inside and we see what is a myriad of stars and some dense cloudy areas where we see the rim of this spiral that is uh, the galaxy. 
In our galaxy, bear with me, they're estimated to be about 300 billion stars. That's 300,000 million, for those of you who get lost on the zeros, which is most of you, I can tell. <laughs> um, our sun is a star. There are 300,000 million stars in the Milky Way. And then the Andromeda galaxy in that photo is about three times that. One trillion stars, one million million stars. To me, that's breathtaking. That's a lot of stars. You don't have to be a mathematician to appreciate that that's just a ridiculous amount of stars. A lot of suns. And they're not points on a canvas like you see them on a photo. They're suns. The distances involved are kind of scary, too. Not, it's not the quiet stroll to the nearest Wawa, as you'll, you'll see. Astronomers use the speed of light to measure distance, right? So how fast is the speed of light? Do we have any nerds in the house? Nerd. <laughs> one. We have one. 186,000 miles per second is right. That is the speed of light. Well done, David. Excellent. Jeez, he's a historian and a scientist. I don't know what to do with him. Very good. So I was thinking about this, as I do. Um, I'm, I'm sorry, I have a math degree. You know that, don't you? Uh, you knew you, you were in trouble. Um, I, I reckon, a peace estimate, that each of us travels about a million miles in a lifetime. Mostly by car, a bit by walking, the occasional flight. I reckon it's about a million miles, right? Now, if you're a frequent flyer and you do lots of flying around in planes, it might be three or five million miles, but it's of that kind of order of magnitude of distance that you would travel in a lifetime. So... Light travels that same distance in five seconds. Five seconds. Five seconds, that's your whole life, as far as light is concerned. Done the whole lot. It's finished. Time for tea. So, so now stretch that to how far light would travel in a whole year. Forget five seconds. Multiply that by two and a half million, and that's how far away this galaxy is. Two and a half million light years. That's just mind-boggling, right? By the word of Yahweh, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. And the psalmist doesn't say, God toiled for a zillion years with his army of angels to make the whole universe. The psalmist says he spoke it into being. All right, so at the, at the risk of doing your next sin, or at the risk of you concluding you accidentally drove into the high school this morning instead of Cultivate Church, I want to show you another photo. So this second photo, which you're going to have to turn around to see, is, is taken with big equipment. It was taken with the Hubble Extreme Deep Field Equipment. It's a 23-day exposure uh, observing from Earth's orbit. 
and it is an empty part of the sky. Now, can't see it so well from here, but this was supposed to be an empty part of the sky, empty from where we are, as we see from this earth. We don't see anything there. Hubble took a long, long look. Now, the moon in the, in the bottom right corner is not there. That's just to show you the size of the small red rectangle, which you can't see. <laughs> in the very lower left corner, the size of the small red rectangle is the size of the rest of the photo. All right? It gives you an idea of how much sky is in the photo. So, more stars, you think? Pete's found us more stars. Well, not exactly. This section of the sky, which is supposed to be empty, um, is, and this photo become quite well known over the last few years. Every one of the points of light in that photo, except for a few streaks from closer objects, are galaxies. They're not stars. They're galaxies, like the Milky Way and Andromeda. In this small, empty piece of sky, we've identified over 5,000 galaxies. What? It's beyond astonishing, isn't it? Is awesome a big enough word? What can we learn about this? So, I look at this, and I feel as if God is looking in from behind those galaxies in that photo with a gentle smile and saying, you haven't even begun to understand. You haven't even begun to understand. You think you know so much. 5,000 galaxies in a small piece of sky. The psalmist says, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. Their starry host, by the breath of his mouth, he gathers the waters of the sea into jars. He puts the deep into, the, into storehouses. Let all the earth Fear the Lord. Let all the people of the word revere or stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came into being. He commanded and it stood firm. That should bring us to praise him, right? We're such busy people. We're wound up, wound up with the life around us and and indeed, um, so, uh, so we are. But we get drawn in. We get drawn in. We make a box. Sometimes we live in that box, but certainly we make that box around the God that we have in our heads. And we see God as someone who is a friend, who is a companion, who is close. But then we limit him and we don't see that he is almighty. He is almighty. He is the creator of something which is so large we can't comprehend it. We confine him. I, I like to call it the box syndrome. That's why it's good to pause and reflect, right? We pause and reflect. That's why it's good to pause and reflect in places that, that are awesome, that remind you of just how Incredible God is. So a spot 
So uh, uh, the vastness of the universe is beyond understanding. And to say the universe is like, to say the universe is big is like saying there is a spot of water in the Atlantic Ocean. It's a bit of an understatement, right? And he spoke it into being. So my, my self-image of my own existence is blown when I reflect on that. And I hope yours is too. What is our existence? All we are and all we've done seems small, doesn't it? Insignificant part of the universe. What is life for? Why is the universe so big? Why is life so short, 70 or 80 years? What, what is worthwhile? Even more incredible than the works of our creator God is that he wants a relationship with us, his created beings. The great I am cares, really cares about you and me and wants to know us. See, that pause and reflect needs more than a summer. And it's not size, just size either. It's extravagance. Who thinks God is extravagant? Oh, we've got some, we've got some yeses. Even one galaxy with a few billion stars would seem to be more than we could ever possibly need or comprehend. Beyond that, there could be nothing, right? We don't have a clear count, but there are billions of galaxies out there. There's enough galaxies in the universe for a few hundred each, and that's all six billion of the people on Earth. And that extravagance is not only seen in the sky either. For those of you who prefer to look down to earth, what do you think of the beauty around us, the diversity, the detail of the natural world? I've been doing a lot of walking this summer, um, and even in New Jersey, there's an incredible diversity. One of uh, my joys of nature this summer has been the butterflies. So you have to understand that I grew up in England, and um, in England, there only seems to be two or three types of butterfly, and they're all white, right? So, all creamy white. So, if you see a butterfly that's not white, you think you've won the lottery, okay? Um, around here, there's an amazing variety of butterflies, some so stunning. I got a photo the other day of a beautiful blue one with fringes. I, I won't show it to you. I can't show it to you anyway, but... I haven't figured out what it is yet, but it's beautiful. So how about you during this summer? Have you had any awesome experience of God's creation that could be shared? Something that left you full of praise for the Lord God? We've got one at the back. Go on. Mount. In the mountains of Colorado, oh, I would agree. Yes, I'd love to go back there. Yeah, beautiful. Ah, yes. I was just walking around last night around here, and and just the noise of the wind in the trees. It, it was quite a wind last night. Was good. <laughs> 
Others? A rainbow. A rainbow. And maybe at the end of next summer, we should share pictures of the awesomeness of God. That would be fun, wouldn't it? <laughs> Sunsets? Yes. One at the back. They can't see their own wings? Yeah. Yeah, that's good. So, yes, if we could only see ourselves in the beauty that we have, that would be interesting too, yes. My last useless scientific factoid of the morning. You're safe after this, right? Regarding the extravagance of God. So you all know barnacles, right? Barnacles. The bumpy, scratchy things you find on boats and rocks at the seashore. Barnacles. You with me so far? Good. Uh, Why did God make them? Well, we're sure he had a reason. Um, We make the boats. God puts the barnacles on. They go for a ride, right? Something like that. Well, not quite. See, a barnacle isn't a thing. They're not all the same, as you would suppose. There are a thousand different species of barnacle. (laughs) Incredible extravagance, don't you think? Really? A thousand different species of barnacle. We could have done with one. No, zero, actually. (laughs) There you go. Okay. Look around you. As Paul says in Romans 1, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made. So let's go back to the psalm and see where he goes next, shall we? If God is the creator of the universe and... And that work is as incredible as we've seen. We should not be surprised at the following. It says this. The Lord, Yahweh, foils the plans of the nations. He thwarts the purposes of the peoples. But the plans of the Lord stand firm forever. The purposes of his heart through all generations. And later on, he says in the psalm, verse 16, No king is saved by the size of his army. No warrior escapes by his great strength. A horse is a vain hope for deliverance. Despite all its great strength, it cannot save. So he points at the things around us that we consider mighty, power and strength of our nations, our armies, our weapons, and he calls them out as nothing, nothing. Instead, he notes that the plans of the Lord stand forever through all generations. The ESV translates um, that last verse, the war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might, it cannot rescue. We don't have war horses anymore, but we have war equipment, don't we, that are even stronger than horses. Our war horses, our tanks, our weapons, our Massive aircraft carriers, cruise missiles, nuclear weapons even, cannot save us. They cannot deliver us. They cannot provide salvation. And God's purpose will not be thwarted by whatever we wield or try. So, 
we often talk about the story of God and we look at the story of God as about God and his dealings with various individuals and peoples. And I think that's right. But it's also a story about kingdoms and nations, right? So think back with me through the story for a moment. So God promised Abraham, 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 a nation. I will make you into a great nation, God said, that all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through him. Then God renamed Abram, Abraham, for I have made you the father of many nations. Abraham's descendants hit some rough times. They ended up in slavery in Egypt. And at the time of Moses, the kingdom of Egypt, which was a mighty kingdom of mighty nation of hundreds of, spanning hundreds of years, was forced to give up the Jews, and ultimately that kingdom fell. When the Jews came to Canaan 40 years later, God overcame that nation. The walls of Jericho were huge. They fell to some dancing soldiers. You remember the story of them walking around and shouting. They fell. And God gave the Jews the land of Canaan, overcoming all others. A psalmist says, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people he chose for his inheritance. And God upheld that nation of the Jews against many other nations until after years of disobedience, the kingdom of Israel fell to the Assyrians and then Judah was given over to the Babylonians and King Nebuchadnezzar. And God was very clear through his prophets that he did that. He did that. He allowed that to happen. He caused that. And after that, the kingdoms of Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome were all powerful, but they all fell according to the purposes of his heart through all generations, as the psalmist says. Then you go to look at the major prophets. Isaiah. Uh, Isaiah. All right. Aside, I have a grandson now who's called Isaiah. But we always call him Isaiah. So he's going to be really confused when he grows up. Anyway. Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, they give us good insight into how God deals with nations. Prophecies of Daniel are amongst my favorites. They predict the fall of Babylon, the rise of other kingdoms that follow through to the Roman Empire. The the story is of God dealing with nations and God accomplishing his purposes through nations. And he cannot be thwarted. Now, I want you to think for a moment because this is an important year for the nation that we live in. And God is not promising that that's going to turn out rosy. But he is not beholden to our nation's purposes or leaders. So whatever we might think, this is not out of his control. God has it laid out. So hear me on this. The next president of the United States, whoever he or she may be, will not thwart God 
or his purpose is set through all generations. Trust in that. Pray this verse if you want. Will not thwart God. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. But he, his plans will be accomplished. Thinking further on the, um, the, the kingdom, something has happened, hasn't it? So we talk about nations and kingdoms up to the time of Christ, but now there is a kingdom which has no geographical border. That kingdom is the kingdom of God. Paul, who was a descendant of descendant of Abraham by birth, tells us in Romans 11 that the blessings promised to Abraham are like an olive root. And we, as non-Jews, have been grafted into the olive tree to share the blessings from that root. So we're all part of the nation promised to Abraham. And the kingdom of God will not fail. Will not fail. A quick note on the future of, and the biblical prophecy as well, because I think our own society and culture can fool us. The Bible teaches that there is a beginning and an end. A beginning and an end. He teaches that life on earth does not not continue forever. There is an end. He says in Revelation 21 that he will make all things new. And there are many different versions or or views on the end. I don't want to force one on you. And I I know that we, we think differently on some of these things. But there are some basics. Jesus is coming back in power and glory. He is coming back. He said he will return many times. There are many prophecies. He's coming back. There will be a new heaven and a new earth. This one passes away. That's what it says in Revelation 21. This one passes away. There will be a new. And most will agree that God warns us that there will be hard times before that happens. So we shouldn't be surprised about unrest or radicalism, or wars, or financial collapse. But we shouldn't think that God has lost control, because he's seen it from the beginning. Again, as the scripture says, the plans of the Lord stand firm forever. The purposes of his heart through all generations. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And we hold on to that. Praise him for that. All right, so though this psalm focuses on God's work in creation, it comes back at the end to deliverance and salvation. The piece we read where the king is not saved by his great army, a warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and and by its might it cannot rescue. And this psalm is one of those that actually bucks the trend of many of the other psalms, most of the other psalms, which talk primarily about salvation. And when you go through them, you conclude something strange, perhaps, that 
despite the incredible work of creation, God's greater work was to provide salvation for us. Despite the incredible work that we've talked through, the massive size of the universe, the beauty of everything around us, God's greater work was to provide salvation for us. I think David came to the same conclusion a couple of weeks ago in his, uh, when he led us on Psalm 111. That really, in the end, that's where David was focusing in that psalm. So, think about this. God spoke the universe into being. Salvation was not so easy. It involved God entering this world as man and becoming a sacrifice for us. He did not just speak away our sin and our rebellion. He is right and true and holy. And he demonstrates to us his incredible love and forgiveness. There is still a penalty to be paid and Jesus paid the penalty. And that sacrifice gives us new life if we take it. We have a choice. We can take it. So, God's work of salvation marked the biggest change in human history. And I would argue that it is greater than his work of creation. It was God's biggest intervention in human history. It changed everything. The whole story of God, really, from Genesis onwards, is about how he gets us back. He pursues us despite our rebellion, our depravity, our selfishness, to get us back. That's what he does. He's pursuing you. He pursued me. How can that work with a God who is so big? Well, maybe they're... The question should be put another way. It's because he's so big that he can do that. But he doesn't do it by the word of power. There was a price to be paid. And there was an intervention of the Almighty himself in this world in order that we could become his children. You know, I remember how God planted things in me when I was just a kid. How he struck me with how, how he got me really when, when I was ready to dash towards self and sin how he drew me towards a group of believers at college and drew them to me how he patiently showed me the work he did at the cross and welcomed me into his kingdom and he put his spirit in me and showed me the way of truth and life I see how he did that and I marvel that he would do that. The God of the universe would come and do that. The intervention is staggering. There's one name given to God which we didn't mention earlier. Um, you're not going to see it. <laughs> you can look at it if you want. We've got some Hebrew there, but we've also got the translation, so it's easy. This one is Emmanuel. Um, comes from Isaiah chapter 7. And you know the translation of Emmanuel, right? God with us. 
So we spend all our worries on this life and what is around the next corner looking for God to intervene in our current dilemmas. But God has our backs and he has intervened and he has preserved us for eternity. We are saved by God with us. God saw worth in us. God loved us so much that he saw past the failure of the sin and rebellion in us. And the almighty God, Yahweh, made a way. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. And that changes us, doesn't it? That must change us to repent from our sins, to be transformed through the work of the Holy Spirit, to treat others with the same grace that God has shown to us, to forgive as God has forgiven, to let go of selfishness, hate, anger, to be changed into his likeness, to encourage, to strengthen one another seems to me that man's nature seeks conflict and revenge, but what God wants is repentance, forgiveness, reconciliation. Our armies do not save us, but God does. And we look at the creation and see his awesomeness, and we worship and praise him. Not just because of that, but because he reached out to us, despite ourselves, and saved us through his Son. So let's go to the last uh, few verses of the psalm here and just read them through briefly before we pray. He finishes, But the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him, on those whose hope is in his unfailing love, to deliver them from death and keep them alive in famine. We wait in hope for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. In him our hearts rejoice, for we trust in his holy name. May your unfailing love be with us, Lord, even as we put our hope in you. We stand in awe of him who breathed the universe into being, yet has demonstrated his love for us in that Emmanuel died for us. He delivers us from death and into eternal life with him. And we can remember that as we come to his table. His love is unfailing. Not just that it doesn't stop, it doesn't fail. And we rejoice, do we not? And we praise him, almighty God. We trust in his holy name. He is the great I am. He is the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. Let's pray. Thank you, Father. Thank you. Thank you that your creation calls out to us and reminds us of you, Lord. We praise you and we worship you for all you are and all you have accomplished. We mostly praise you, Lord, for your work of salvation, for sending your son to pay the penalty for our rebellion and sin and disobedience. And we thank you for bringing us into eternal life with you. Pray for our country, Lord. At this, in this important year, we trust that your plans stand firm and that the purposes of your heart will be accomplished 
As you build your kingdom, use us, your Lord, as your servants, we pray. And thank you that there is a day, Lord, when your son will return and there will be an end of things and a new thing and a new beginning. And open our eyes to all that's planned for us. Praise you, Father. You are the Alpha and Omega. Amen.